0: The power of God brings real change in the lives of people. The gospel is a message of power. We're emphasizing the word power as part of what Paul himself testified. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. Romans 1 Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save sinners And the desire of God's people is to live out and now keep in step with this gospel that has saved and which we confess as the good news for our hearts. The desire of God's people is to walk with him. To walk with God as a result of the new birth and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Peter writes to his readers in 1 Peter 2, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What has made the difference in the lives of those readers? And the answer that Peter gives is mercy. Divine mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. So he tells them, beloved, beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The work of salvation, then, is a work of God's power. How could this leave a life unchanged? Salvation from God leads to a life lived for God, because it's a life accomplished by God's mercy. A life now lived for the glory of God, and we use big words and big pictures like, Darkness and light as the realms from which we have been transferred and brought. Our identity is new. In Adam we were dead in our sins and trespasses and we were totally depraved. The language of total depravity describes our fallen condition outside Christ. Being totally depraved means the condition of our enslaved will. Our darkened understanding. The hardness of our heart and our spiritual blindness and our unbelief most deeply. But consider, beloved, what Christ has done through the powerful working of salvation in us. We are free from the condemnation of our sin and its power. Our mind has been filled with the understanding of the gospel. Our hearts have been awakened to new life in Christ And our eyes have beheld both our need, but even more stunningly, our Redeemer. So through faith, we are united to Christ. This union means something. Union with Christ means we are not left in total depravity. I was being very careful with my words a moment ago when I said total depravity rightly describes the condition of the sinner outside Christ. But if anyone is in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, they are a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 4, we heard from the scripture reading this morning, they're being inwardly renewed day by day. And they have a weight of glory, of future resurrection life before them. Total depravity accurately. Describes our condition in Adam. But it does not describe our new life in Christ. We are regenerated and redeemed. We are united to Christ in the everlasting life of the new covenant. And though we die, we shall rise in glory. For we are united to Him. Total depravity cannot survive union with the risen Christ which means we are being inwardly renewed. And these categories help us think about the very bold language of the psalmist in Psalm 26. In Psalm 26, he is speaking of a life being lived for the the glory of God on a path marked by the covenant faithfulness and life of God. This is someone who knows God. Does he experience the effects of sin? Yes. Does he deal with the ongoing snares and temptations of this life? Yes. But he has life in God his refuge. He wants and pursues God. That is what the power of God accomplishes. The gospel is not a weak word. Paul says it is the power of God to save sinners. In Psalm 25, we saw last week a prayer to be taught, instructed, formed by the Word of God. He prays things like Psalm 25, verse 4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. He wants to be guided and led. What does that lead to? If this prayer is what we pray, Christians want this. We desire to be led by the Lord, taught of the Word of God, guided in wisdom. The result is what Psalm 26 gives us. Psalm 26 is the fruit of answered prayer for those who are coming to God and say, Lord, shape me, change me, guide me, comfort me, sustain me by Your Word. This is what the people of God pray. And in Psalm 26, we see in verses 1 and 2 a request for vindication. Vindicate me, O Lord, which means to cast a verdict on my behalf. Likely, the context of the psalm means that the psalmist is facing things that are difficult. Others might have accused him of things that could cause shame and frustration. We know the likelihood of this in the in the Psalms anyway. Psalm twenty-five two talks about, "Let me not be put to shame, and let my enemies not exult over me." David will. From time to time, face people who want to exult over him, that he might be shamed before them. In Psalm 25, 19, he says, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. This is how Psalm 25 ends. Well, Psalm 26 says, vindicate me, O Lord, because in light of the suffering and affliction of David, he faces things that in In what he could pray to be the best case scenario, God would act on his behalf over against the suffering and the opposition of the enemies that he faces. And Psalm 27, the next Psalm, verse 2, 27-2, David says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. He has in view in these Psalms, and it likely informs ours this morning, Difficulties and challenges, and words that he says, Lord, not what they say. Let what you say about me as your people, let it reign as the supreme verdict over my life. Vindicate me, O Lord. For I have walked in my integrity, and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Verses 1 and 2 are a request for vindication. And he's not trying to engage in any self-delusion when he says, I've walked in my integrity. You say, well, David, has he ever had a bad day? He says he's trusting in the Lord without wavering. Is this man even human? What are we talking about here? What kind of spiritual life is this? David's language is spoken in such a way because God is his refuge. And the language about without wavering means to not buckle in abandonment. Without wavering doesn't mean snares and challenges and sufferings aren't in David's path. He's praying that God will vindicate him because he says, Lord, I am seeking to live as your child. What I want is to know you, O God. In other words, Why would someone point to their integrity of life and their trust in the Lord? Because they know that this is the fruit of one whose refuge is God. So he says, with boldness, vindicate me, O God, for I have walked in my integrity, which speaks of his way of life. It is not the perfection of our life, but the direction of our life that signals The sort of fruit of faith that passages like this bring to our minds. And he knows that in the end, he stands before no other person. He stands only before God. And the penetrating eyes of God, he invites the gaze of God upon his heart. Verse 2, prove me, try me, test my heart and my mind. And he knows that the Lord never examines anything imperfectly and would never behold something and evaluate something and come to the wrong conclusion. David really can entrust himself to the Lord. Even if others around him would give a different evaluation, he knows that he stands and falls before God alone. And he invites the evaluating eye of God upon his life because David knows, I want to know and follow God. That's about his walk, the path that he's on. And he knows this. He invites God in the innermost recesses of his life, heart and mind. The language in the original is language about kidneys and mind, which would seem strange. Your translation probably doesn't say kidneys and mind. Why would there be a reference to organs, you know, in the uh, original language? And that's because in the context of the Old Testament, speaking about something deeply within you like the organs that help our bodies run, it was a way of talking about the deep recesses of a person that only God can know. So he says, Lord, your eye upon the deepest parts of me, what is it that you will find, God? That I want to know you. That I want to follow you. That's what you know. David is not perfect, but he knows God because God is his refuge. I think of the hymn that I remember from many years growing up, You know, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Thinking about my cross I'll carry, and though none go with me, and the world behind me and cross before me. A no turning back is what David is saying. I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. This is David's resolve. This needs to be our resolve. David is facing all sorts of things he cannot control. And you know what he is committed to in his heart? He said, I'm going to trust you, Lord. No turning back. No turning back. Because God is God alone. And God is mighty and exalted in all the earth. And God can be trusted with all of David's pain and all of his confusion and all of his past, present, and future. All of his sins and grief. He says, then Lord, I'm going to trust you. No turning back. David's... Evidence that he offers in light of this claim the claim in verses 1 and 2 is evidence he points to in verses 3 through 8 verses 3 through 8 is it's David's way of saying Lord I'm not just saying I'm trying to walk in integrity I'm not just saying I want to know you and follow you on this path Lord your work in me is such that it is born out this kind of resolve outwardly this inner and outer life. David wants things to match. He wants to live with integrity. Which means to live a, a life of, of wholeness. That wherever you are and whoever you're with, you, you want to be the, the same person. One who knows God and follows God as a repenting sinner. In verses 3-8, to eight, the evidence David supplies begins with God's steadfast love. Because for David, this is everything it's grounded in right here. The steadfast love and faithfulness of God. He says, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. In other words, David is not pointing to David's greatness. That's not what this psalm is about. David is drawing attention to his desire to follow the Lord and his pursuit of God. But what is that grounded in? See, that's the deeper question. If we desire God... Are you to be thanked for that? If we have a love for God, do you get to pat yourself on the back for that? If you're following the Lord and seeking the Lord, is it just because you're more clever and you've got us... This language here is David pointing to what he knows is true of God that grounds anything that is a pursuit of the Most High in David's life. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. And I walk in your Faithfulness. The word faithfulness could be the word truth as well. It's about covenant. Covenant faithfulness or covenant truth. God's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. David says, that's what's before me. Now, before my eyes is uh, imagery of uh, of looking to God with a heart, the eyes of the heart. These are not David's physical eyes. Obviously, your steadfast love is before my eyes, meaning what is it that I'm going to think on? What is it that I need to meditate upon? want to meditate upon God to think on the steadfast love of God to think on the faithfulness of God is to deliberately direct one's hearts and thoughts to God above all this is the foundation of the psalmist's security and hope mercy and grace shown to David and David says with it being before his eyes it's like this is what I'm thinking about this is what I'm focused on I want to think about God because when David would think of himself, just what is possible in his own strength, and apart from the saving grace and refuge of God, what is clear to David? Well, in, in Psalm 25, he says, my guilt is great in verse 11. And he says in verse 18, he needs all of his sins forgiven. In other words, when, when David points to a life seeking after God, he knows that is only possible because God is merciful. God is merciful. And David has not lost sight of that. His spiritual eyes, his understanding, is contemplating the love and faithfulness and truth of God. He is deliberately guiding his heart into truth. We use language like preaching the gospel to yourself, opening the word of God and reminding our hearts and minds, what is it that we know of God from his word? Because think of it this way, friends. Where would David get notions of God's faithfulness and covenant? Where's he going to find that information? Short answer, the Bible. Where's he going to learn of God, that God can be trusted in all things, and that his power secures the hope for his people, and that the faithfulness of God is a ground for all of our pursuit of God? Where's David going to learn this? Is he going to look at the stars? He's going to open the Word. Word. He's going to open the word of God, he's going to bring his soul to his word, and he's going to pray that God would once again, before his eyes, bring, to, bring up to his attention his steadfast love and faithfulness. In verses 4 and following, he begins to unpack more of this evidence that verses 3 through 8 give us. He says, I don't sit with men of falsehood, nor nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Verses 4 and 5 remind us of Psalm 1. Do you remember the beginning of the book of Psalms where he says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. Think of the language we're reading here. I don't sit, consort, I don't sit with the wicked at the end of verse 5. It's the idea of belonging. He's not saying he's not friends with unbelievers or would share a meal with them. He's talking about the the table fellowship of identity and belonging that the ancient Near East knew is symbolized by language like this. To sit with someone is the idea of the Psalm 1 kind of sitting. To take a seat with the mockers. To say, you know what I want for my life? I want what they do. I want what they do to shape me. I want to want what they want, and oh, look at their priorities, the priorities of the wicked. I want their priorities in my life. He's saying, "Lord, your steadfast love is before my eyes. What effect does that have on the sinner? To be directed into wisdom and away from wickedness? He says, "Therefore, men of falsehood, I don't want what they want. Those hypocrites who would say one thing and live differently, that's not what I want. In verse 5, the assembly of the evildoers with all of their conspiring together and all of their wickedness and all of their rebellion, he says, that's not what I want to identify my life with. So when they have a seat at the table and they say, come live in defiance of the Lord with us, he says, I don't take their seat. I don't sit with them because you, O Lord, your steadfast love and faithfulness, that's what I see. It's before my eyes. And what's before my eyes will determine where I sit. And he says, I see your faithfulness, O God. Your truth. Your love. So I don't don't want what those living in defiance of you want. He says in verses 6 and 7 something differently. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. And the only reason he would be innocent is because of the prayer in Psalm 25. That he be forgiven of his sin. David is not sinless. But he knows God who's a refuge for the sinner. And therefore, when he says, I wash my hands in innocence, he is acting out of the overflow of the work of God within him already. Going around your altar, proclaiming Thanksgiving aloud. It's this picture of of celebration. David is in the days before the temple is going to be built by his son Solomon. Which means the days of David are those that from Moses to David, it had the, the tabernacle. The portable tent of meeting. And they would have an altar and sacrifices would be brought. Sometimes offerings of thanksgiving. And the people would be able to declare what they were thankful to God for. This is the imagery here. David says, what do I do? I don't want what the wicked want. I want to know you, O God. And as I think about your love and as I think about your faithfulness. As I think about your work in my life. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for what you've done. So he says, Here's what I do. I go around your altar proclaiming Thanksgiving aloud. It's this picture of someone leaping around, heralding what God has done. It's a wonderful picture for our minds. He says, So here I am, I'm going around your altar. David's not a priest. There are priests at the altar. I think we're to envision that. But David's not standing still. His energy is animated by what God has done. And I'm proclaiming out loud. I am telling. I'm not just thinking about it. I want everybody to know what God has done. So I'm telling your wondrous deeds. This is public testimony about the wonders and greatness of God. And in verse 8, he says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. The wicked do not. They hate God. They don't love his word. They don't want to know God. They don't want to walk with God. David says here's what I love I love where you dwell. This further confirms we're dealing with tabernacle picture, right? Because the habitation of your house would naturally call to mind those pre temple days where the people of God would approach the tabernacle and then later they would approach the temple, but it symbolized the dwelling and glory of God. David says, I love that because I know you. I want to commune with you. We don't live in the days of the Old Testament. We don't live under the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant with Israel formed in the book of Exodus ongoing. Christ has fulfilled these matters and in Christ he has brought about about a new covenant. And we can talk about gathering with the people of God in the presence of God though and say something similar in the new covenant. And I would argue something even greater. You know, one of the reasons we want to meet on the Lord's Day morning is because we love the habitation of God's people. Where God's presence is among us with his word. Where we sing and exalt the Lord. I wonder if you love that. So David here, he's talking about the Old Testament tabernacle. And in Christ and his church, greater realities have come. If David could say this, how much more should we? David says, I love the habitation of your house. The place where your glory is. Because David's heart is directed to knowing God and following God where His Word and people are there and all of the displays and words and prayers and songs. Oh, what a lively place the tabernacle was. Oh, we need to love the gathering of the people of God and the presence of God where His glory is manifest and power through the gospel and sinners are renewed and sustained. Verses 9-12 through 12 is his request at the end. This request is going to sound similar as we get through these four verses, verses 9 through 12. And it's a way of closing this psalm in the same way he opened. Notice, for instance, in verse 11, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Well, here we are finding language near the end of the psalm that the psalm opened with. David is once again wanting to drive the point home that in his prayer to the Lord, he is confident that God would examine the deepest recesses of David's life, and you know what God would find? That David has been changed by the mercy of God. And that no matter what others would say, and no matter what others would accuse, David knows I'm pursuing the Lord. So he says, in verses 9 through 12, don't sweep my soul away with sinners makes me think again of Psalm 1. The blessed man was like a tree planted by streams of living water. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff blown away by the wind. The, the imagery of judgment, of condemnation is in view here in verse nine and th- verses 9 and 10. He says, don't sweep my soul away with sinners. He knows that before God he shall stand. And therefore God who is righteous altogether will not not include his people in condemnation. But God who is righteous and justifies his people by grace through faith as their refuge. God secures his people and David does not need to fear. He says, don't sweep my soul away with sinners nor my life with bloodthirsty men. And God answers this prayer of his people. The sinners here, David's not saying I'm not a sinner, those are sinners. He's talking about sinners in the sense of those who are the wicked in rebellion, not like the life of the righteous who wants to know God. So he says, Don't sweep my soul away with the sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices, whose right hands are full of bribes. You see, their sinfulness is characterized by a lack of love for God and neighbor. Toward God, they're in rebellion, toward their neighbor, they are malicious. They're bloodthirsty and their hands are evil devices. The hands are representing the tasks they perform. The work they commit themselves to. So with their hands, what work do they commit themselves to? Evil. He said evil devices are in their hands. He said, I love the habitation of your house in verse 8. I don't want what they want. I don't want to live on a path of destruction. Don't sweep my soul away with sinners. Whose hands and whose right hand is full of evil devices and bribes. He says, as for me, what am I going to resolve? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. That's what. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. So David says, as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. This is not, again, pointing to David's greatness. He's talking about a life... Lived out where God is the refuge of the sinner. A life where the power of God has brought transformation. Because again, the power of the gospel saves and sustains the sinner. He knows he's casting himself upon the mercy of God. Because of the last part of the verse. Not only does he say, as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. He says, redeem me. Be gracious to me. This must be our prayer. That the Lord who is all seeing knowledge and eye upon all of our hearts to the very depths and the recesses of our beings would be a God so powerfully and deeply at work that we are a people redeemed. The gracious God and merciful God has shown upon us his steadfast love. Be gracious to me, he prays. If God is David's refuge, here's what David can affirm in verse 12. My foot stands on level ground. Now it doesn't always feel that way. Because look at some of the songs. I mean it looks like with some of them he's saying, I'm at the depths of Sheol and the torrents of destruction are coming all over me. And I'm so overwhelmed by life and suffering and affliction. But here's what he knows in following God. Knowing God is the place of sure spiritual stability. This is where he must ground himself. This is the level ground. All other ground is sinking sand. The level ground is trusting God. The level ground is looking to God. The level ground is refuge in God. So he says, my foot stands on level ground. And in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. David is praying this and not all is well around him. But he knows God. And he knows that what his soul must do is he must look unto God and exalt the Lord and cry out to God and pray to God and confess to God and plead with God and bless the Lord. So he says, here is what I will do. David also knows when we read these psalms, we see this to be the case. The future... It's not going to be like the challenges that he faces now. He has such hope in God for what God will bring to pass. What God will do in and through his people and the covenants and faithfulness of God that are yet to come. You know what the future is for the people of God? More ever going faithfulness of God toward us. You know what day by day we are pressing into and moment by moment the unceasing steadfast love of God. This is our present and future. I was encouraged in reading some words by John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. He was known more than a writer of books to be a writer of letters. And one of the things John Newton said, as he looks at his life, and he looks at his hope, and he looks at what God has done in his life already, he says, I am not what I ought to be. How imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil. I would cleave to what is good, but I'm not what I hope to be. Soon, soon, he says, I shall put off mortality. And with mortality, all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was. And he says, by the grace of God. I am what I am. And friends, our encouragement in Christ as our refuge is that we want the redeeming work of God in all of its glorious fullness, and that is promised to us. We know we are not what we ought and desire to be, but by the grace of God. We are not what we were, dead in Adam, our will apart from God, pursuing destruction. Instead, the mercy of God has made we who were not a people now a people, bringing us from darkness to light and directing our hearts unto God. And so now we say to the Lord, O Lord, we invite your eyes upon our lives that you might confirm by what you see that your mercy has powerfully worked within. It has not been in vain. It has not been without effect. And you have made me new. And I'm on a path, Lord, seeking your face for my days. Let's pray together. (laughs) you <laughs>